0: Welcome to the Indy Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Welcome to our weekly podcast. Each week, we'll discuss matters of importance that we covered and look ahead to what's coming in the Nevada Independent. We're a nonprofit news site. You can find us at thenevadaindependent.com. I'm joined tonight by our super, super Carson City team, Riley Snyder, Megan Messerly, and Michelle Rindell. Say hello, everybody.
1: Hey, John. Hi, John.
0: They're so shy. This team is just so shy shy in the podcast, but we'll get going. Uh, Anyhow, we're coming to you as we we have throughout the session uh, from Carson City, uh, and it's only two weeks from Monday it's going to end, team. I cannot believe it. Uh, We're going to have a big party then at this house. They don't know that yet, but uh, we we are going to. Uh, A lot happened this week, uh, but the big story uh, was the uh, hearing Uh, on the so-called Laxalt tapes that we've been reporting on uh, in the Nevada Independent. We're going to talk about that in a moment. There were also developments on a other issues that didn't get as much prominence because of the oxygen being sucked out of the building by, by the Laxalt uh, hearing. Uh, we, we have stories uh, about a bill that Michael Roberson has now uh, put in to compete with Ivana Cancela's uh, pharma, pharmaceutical industry bill. Uh, you've covered a bunch of issues, Michelle, including uh, some big developments on the weighted f- funding formula, which is a major, major education bill. And Riley knows, now knows more about energy than Chris Brooks, uh, and he's going to talk about uh, some of the energy bills. But guys, let's start uh, with the big story uh, of, of the week, uh, the Wednesday uh, uh, evening hearing uh, before a joint uh, Senate and uh, Assembly uh, budget committees. Maggie Carlton uh, is pushing a bill that would take the Attorney General out of the, of, the, of the Gaming Control Board as legal counsel. This is a reaction to a story we broke in February about uh, a taping It was the first time we heard from Adam Laxalt extensively, read a very long statement, and then took questions. Uh, who wants to talk about this hearing first? This was a triple byline from uh, the Carson City team. Don't be shy. Someone jump in. Well,
2: they're all pointing at me, so I guess I can start. Um, <laughs> yeah, so Wednesday night, we sat through about two and a half hours of hearing from both Attorney General Adam Laxalt and A.G. Burnett, who's the chairman of the Gaming Control Board. And really, there were like there were two kind of hearings going on. There was... One, this whole discussion about this bill, AB 513, that takes the attorney general's, um, I guess, their role and how they, they deal with the gaming control board. Right now they have deputy attorney generals who are stationed with them, who kind of work with them as their chief legal counsel. This bill would allow the gaming control board and other gaming regulators to have their own attorney. It's a conversation that's been going on for a long time in the state. So we have that going on, and there were some comments about that. But really a lot of it came down to this whole issue of the tapes, you know. Why did A.G. Burnett feel the need to tape Adam Laxalt? Was what Adam Laxalt asking A.G. Burnett in this tape that was recorded without Laxalt's knowledge that was turned over to the FBI, did it you know, violate a state interest, or was it for the state's best interest? Was he working on behalf of the Sands? Was he not working on behalf of the Sands? So it was interesting to see kind of the, those two competing dynamics. We've obviously reported a lot on, on the other one, the, the one of you know, why Laxalt did this, the whole story behind the tape, um, but it was interesting to also see, you know, the, the bill, the whole kind of reason this whole show was put together um, w- was the bill.
0: Uh, we should give maybe a little bit more background in case people aren't that familiar with it. This had to do with last year when the Sands was going through a very bitter civil dispute uh, with a former employee who, who was suing them. They eventually settled that case for 75 uh, million dollars. There was, there was a question of whether certain documents should be kept confidential or not. Uh, and, and the Sands had been pushing the Gaming Control Board to intervene in this lawsuit. They went to Laxalt. Laxalt disclosed at that hearing they had had a meeting at the Venetian with Sheldon Adelson and some other people. They'd been pushing him. Then Laxalt uh, essentially uh, went to Burnett And had this conversation. By the way, you can go to the NevadaIndependent.com. You can see the transcript and actually hear uh, the tape there. And essentially, Burnett taped him, as Riley said, because he had gotten tipped off that Laxalt was going to come to him on behalf of the Sands, which is clearly how Burnett uh, in, in interpreted it, um, Megan. Let, let me let me let you talk talk a little bit about this. There, there was essentially a campaign run by Adam Laxalt uh, in advance of this hearing, essentially to try to portray this as a partisan witch hunt, uh, to say that that the stories had been distorted in the media. I don't know where he's talking about when he was talking about that. And so then it came, and so. How were the questions when you talk about what the Democrats asked about and what the Republicans asked about? Did they play into that narrative that this is purely
1: partisan? I think we saw some of that. I think it was interesting to see the difference between the questions that were asked to A.G. Burnett and then the questions that were asked to Adam Laxalt. Mm-hmm. I actually think you know, the Democrats tried to ask some of the questions that Republicans had been bringing up, you know, about, about the timeline and, you know, why did you go to this extraordinary step of actually recording your conversation? And so in some ways, it kind of seemed like the Democrats were trying to preempt some of those questions from Republicans. And so I, I think you you got some tough questions for, for A.G. Burnett or, you know, probing questions when it was his portion of the hearing to talk. And then when we got to Adam Laxall, I mean, I think you saw obviously, you know, there are partisan dynamics at play there. So I think you saw, you know, the, the Democrats, you know, still trying to figure out, you know, what was going on. There was a very pointed question that Senate Majority Leader uh, Aaron Ford asked at one point, and he said, you know, you basically he was trying to get at, you know, did you do this for the Sands or did you do it for the state and and sort of made him answer that um, directly. And so, so that was sort of an interesting moment. Um, and then I think that you saw from the Republicans, you know, trying to, ask questions about, well, you know, is is there anything wrong with the way that your office cooperates with the um, gaming control board right now? Has this ever been an issue? And sort of, you know, trying to ask him questions to show that, you know, everything's fine here. There's nothing wrong. They had a perfectly normal relationship. You know, at, the actions he took were perfectly normal. So I, I think we, I mean, we definitely saw I guess, easier questions from Republicans than we did Democrats, which we expected, obviously.
0: Right. E- exactly. And what, what was in, what's interesting is how this, if you look at the transcript and, and or, or listen uh, to the tape, and maybe, Michelle, you can talk about this uh, a little bit, is, is just how different the interpretations are, whether that's how they're being interpreted or whether it's being spun. A.G. Burnett essentially saying, I was worried, and, and this recording confirms, that uh, Adam Laxalt was lobbying me, not as my lawyer, but on behalf of another person, Sheldon Adelson and his company, The Sands, while Laxalt's contention, that essentially during a very lengthy opening statement, as I said, is that this was just routine, this was just about co- confidentiality of documents, no big deal. I mean, there's a huge gulf between those interpretations, and I, and, and, and I think that, that was very stark, don't you think, in, in their, each of their testimony.
3: Yeah, I think A.G. Burnett, um, he s- seemed like he was kind of spooked by this whole thing that Adam Laxalt was was texting him and, and just saying, you know, let's move mountains to meet. I'll go pick you up wherever you're at. I need to talk to you before your vacation to t- talk to you about the sands. And uh, A.G. Burnett said this was coming in uh, amid this very contentious lawsuit amid all these investigations that were going on so he's putting two to do two and two together and he's um, really nervous about this whole encounter uh, but he doesn't want he said he didn't want to be rude and say he didn't want to meet um, but he was nervous enough he said that he he put his phone out in front of him at this coffee shop and recorded this conversation and then presumably shortly after uh, this conversation took place he turned to the governor's office, and... That's a pe- one piece of news that came out of this. Talk about that. So, um, you know, the AG, uh, the attorney general, is supposed to be the legal counsel for the gaming control board, but obviously the problem is, is with the attorney general. So he said he talks frequently with the governor's office, and he talked with the uh, general counsel over there. And what they concluded was that they didn't want to look back on this and think they missed an opportunity or um, did some sort of misstep. And so they felt they needed to, to be able to look back and say, I did the right thing. So they said that was going to be going to the FBI. That was Governor Sandoval's general counsel said, you know, let's take this to the FBI.
0: And uh, I think Adam Laxalt was asked about that. And I think he said that that's the first I've heard of this. So, And I think it was uh, the first that, that he knew why it was taken to... Uh, to the FBI. There was another piece of news, it seemed to me, and I'd like you guys to tell me if you think there's any other news when, who wants to talk about the question that uh, State Senator Ben Keekeffer asked Laxalt that re- that, that uh, uh, resulted in some news. What was that?
2: Yeah, I was going to mention that when Megan was talking about Republicans asking easier <laughs> questions. Probably the worst question for Laxalt came from <laughs> Keekeffer who said, were you ever asked to recuse yourself or did the Gaming Control Board ask for independent counsel in this case? And he said, yes. So we Which was a...
0: stunning, because I don't think anybody knew that. And a lot of people said, you know, Ben Keekeffer's not a lawyer, but you should never ask a question, especially when you're trying to be a friendly questioner, that you don't know the answer to. I mean, we've seen it in uh, Perry Mason. Well, you guys are too young for Perry Mason. But in Law & Order, you know, you, you, the lawyer should never ask uh, a, a friendly witness or his own client uh, a question he doesn't know the answer to. Because I, I think people in that room were stunned, and we still haven't gotten to the bottom of exactly what happened, right, Riley? No,
2: we asked for clarification because Keekeffer did ask a compound question. So was he saying yes to recusal or yes to independent counsel? Like, there's a difference there. Neither looks good for Laxalt, but <laughs> right. it's important to get the the truth out there.
0: And so we don't know that we have not. I I think you and I both asked the attorney general's office for clarification and uh, all day long, and we have not heard back. Correct? As
2: of 8:07 on Thursday night, we, I have we are not doing gotten this on Thursday night. Back. We
0: should uh, remind uh, everybody. I, I wonder, Megan. Uh, I, w- there was a lot of hype going into this. Uh, it, it took. A little more than two hours, uh, I think. Maggie Carlton, I think, tried to keep it uh, on, uh, keep it running fairly smoothly. There was no real um, drama, I don't think, that some people might have thought. I'm, I'm not sure I thought it, that, that was going to happen. Although A.G. Burnett, who is known as kind of a steady guy did lose his temper a little bit at one point with a guy that you wouldn't have expected uh, to do. To talk about that moment. That was really something.
1: Yeah, so at one point, uh, Republican Assemblyman James Oscarson was uh, reading a question. It looked like he was looking at his computer and it sort of sounded like he was reading directly off of his computer. A question to A.G. Burnett, and um, A.G. Burnett asked him to, he, he, I don't think he quite answered the question, so he asked him to repeat it, and, and in the middle of uh, Assemblyman Oscar, Oscarson starting to repeat the question. he sort of interjected something about, you know, did did someone else write that for you? you know, insinuating that, there may be the sands, or, or maybe you know we've heard a lot of criticism from you know Republican uh, Senator Michael Roberson, but you know somehow insinuating that that question was not a, not his own and had been planted.
0: Yeah, I mean, Oscarson, who was who's kind of a laid back kind of guy too, didn't push back at all. Didn't didn't try to challenge him on that,
1: right? No, yeah, but I think I think at that point it didn't. Uh, assemblywoman assembly chair uh maggie carlton i think she kind of said something you yeah. know sort of trying to rein him back yeah. in you know
2: <laughs> it has been really interesting to see like how republicans outside of the michael roberson spear have reacted to this i'm talking about people like assembly minority leader paul anderson a lot of the other republicans on the committee um you know we look back and listen to it and outside of just a f- few of them they really asked kind of um basic procedural questions not really becoming partisan warriors so that was interesting to see last night as well was that they all weren't you know, throwing bombs and calling Burnett a rogue regulator or whatever.
1: Right. Assemblyman Paul Anderson, I think at one point he asked, you know, uh, Attorney General Adam Laxalt to explain the difference. You know, you're an elected official, but you're also, you know, the state's top lawyer. Can you sort of walk me through the difference between that? Which, you know, is is an interesting question, but not, you know, it's not really super probing.
0: Yeah. I mean, there was no Republican on that committee Uh, I think Key Keffer may have been the closest, and and, and I got a sense that some of his questions at the beginning were very strange in trying to talk about the leak and how the story got out in the first place, but there was no one on that committee, either committee, who was as hostile to Ag Burnett as as Michael Roberson has been. And by the way, later on, uh, Riley Snyder's is going to have a new feature on this podcast this week, in Michael Roberson, you, you you're going to want to stick around uh, for, for for that. But there really wasn't that. There wasn't really wasn't hostility, right? I think that's what some people were, th- were thinking is going to happen here. That there's going to be hostility from the Democrats to Lack Salt, and hostility
3: uh, from the Republicans
0: to Burnett. That really that really didn't happen, right?
3: I think you did see with um, Assembly Republicans. Robin Titus and Chris Edwards—they were kind of incredulous. Like, why did you want to want to record this? I don't understand. Um, and and I think Robin Titus even tweeted afterwards that um, I don't know <laughs> something something to the effect that like, why would you? Um, you didn't want to be rude by refusing this meeting, but you were pretty rude by recording the meeting. So there were some questions about recording the meeting. Um, and I think there were some questions from the Democrats about, you know, sort of vaguely like are you are you working for the sands?
0: Um, they were yeah. pointed. I just don't think they were like the kind of dramatic kinds of 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 questions that some people I, I thought thought might happen. Uh, in, in, in the hearing, of course, Chris Edwards at one point said, there, I, don't, I don't see a problem uh, with this at all, uh, Attorney General uh, Laxalt, so I guess you know this is over since Chris, since Chris Edwards says that there is no problem. But, but seriously, so where do we go from here? I think people are asking, and I, you've probably gotten these questions too, and I have from people, so what's the next step? Uh, Maggie Carlton uh, is going to try to move this bill, which, uh, if, if she has the support of leadership, will move, because the Democrats have uh, the, the, the votes uh, to do. But what happens in, in, in the larger story? I, I mean, the, if indeed the FBI thinks there's no, that no crime was committed, uh, there, there, oh, it seems to me there are only two possible consequences, substantive consequences for Laxalt, if there are any. One would be this ethics commission uh, complaint that the Democrats have filed. Did it, was he working on behalf of the Sands instead of the, the client? And maybe. Uh, people may have mentioned this to me, I don't know if you guys have heard this, lawyers have said this may invoke some kind of state bar rules if you're not representing your client's interests and, and instead representing anybody else. But what's the talk in the building? To, to talk about that, uh, any of you, all of you. Is, did they think this is over, that, uh, that, that, that it was essentially, uh, there was the big show on Wednesday night and, and, and nothing happens until the campaign when the Democrats have already written their ads. In fact, they're already sending out web videos, right? Uh, is it over?
2: I think that was kind of the sense that we got just because well, one, you know, there's not Adam Laxalt's not gonna come back to the building and like testify this on this when it comes to the other side, like in the Senate Finance Committee. But, you know, they have two and a half weeks left to close up the session. They have a ton of budgets they have to close, they have hundreds of bills they have to get through, there's a lot of stuff that they still have percolating out there. Um, was it a big dramatic moment that everyone was watching? I was talking to one lobbyist today who's like, Yeah, I was watching it on the plane and then I got in my car and I was watching it on my phone there. It was the musty TV of the session but you know i think this is kind of the peak of the the public interest in it i don't know if it's ever going to i guess reach this point again in terms of having all the players there talking about it on the record relatively candidly
3: i thought one interesting thing adam laxalt or, or it was actually senate majority leader ford said was that there's kind of a plausible story on on both sides now now that we've heard from adam laxalt he's got you know, somewhat of an explanation for for why there was a misunderstanding that's out there now. It's not just us knowing what A.G. Burnett said. Um, and, and his <laughs> statement was, you know, there's a plausible explanation that you did nothing wrong, and then there's a plausible explanation that you um, were trying to coerce A.G. Burnett. Um, so the way I look at it is, it's like, you know, there's going to be people on both sides of this. They've got some facts to their defense on each side. Um, and I'm not sure how many people totally flipped over to the other side after the hearing from last night.
0: Because there's so much partisanship involved in this going in, right? The Democrats have been have been going after Laxalt on this since the story first broke, and they've been frothing uh, since this happened, since this started, and they played into Laxalt's hands to some extent when he was crying partisanship. The Republicans, not like Michael Roberson uh, attacking A.G. Burnett, but they have been relatively defensive of Laxalt, he's a leading candidate governor. Uh, and, and so uh, and when the mud- waters get muddied that way, right, and, and, and it's somewhat of a complicated kind of story. I mean, it's a sensational story. Gaming regulator secretly tapes the AG and turns it over to the FBI. But other than that, uh, people either are going to think, I think, as Michelle said, he was doing this for Sheldon Adelson, or they're going to think, oh, this is some complicated state confidential documents thing. I don't, want any, I, I don't really want to pay uh, uh, any more attention to. So Riley, are, are you willing to put up odds that, that Adam Laxalt doesn't come back to the building just because he wants to testify again? You're sure he's not going to do that?
2: I don't think he's going to testify. You know, <laughs> on I don't know, like marijuana lounges. <laughs> like, what else is he going to come back to the building for?
0: I, I don't think he liked the building uh, very very much. In fact, uh, it, it you know it, it just it, it just seems like uh, I think the Democrats wanted more to happen there than actually happened. Uh, but but you can be sure that they're still writing some ads. All right, there was actual le- legislative business this week, so we should talk a little bit. Uh, about that and let, let me start with you Michelle uh, uh, and and you can talk a little bit about uh, uh, the weighted funding formula which is kind of a complicated thing that we've explained and you can go on that independent site yeah, we have an indie explainer on that but that that passed a big hurdle there's a compromise on that i've said many times i think this is the most important education bill uh, it has to do with changing the way that that schools have been funded by using and, and the weighted part of it is to put the weights on different kinds of of kids than they were before. Talk about what happened.
3: So, you know, a month or two ago, there was this bill presented that's going to implement weights. So that means a portion of extra funding is attached to a student who has extra needs. They're an English language learner, special ed student. Um, But the price tag was $1.1 billion, and it just kind of fell flat um, because we just don't have $1.1 billion right now. Uh, But behind the scenes, there was some work being done um, to try to get this started in a more modest way. And what we saw this week was finally, what is it going to look like if we only have $72 million or if we only have $130 million? How do we get this thing going um, when we can't do it 100%? So what what we saw yesterday is a plan to put $1,200 to this certain group of students, and they're going to define it by um, the students that are the lowest 25% in their academic performance, and then within that group, they're going to prioritize the English language learners and the students that are getting free and reduced lunch. So this extra funding, this weight concept might be able to apply to say 30,000 students or maybe up to 50,000 students, Um, but it's a way to capture these students that they're not in one of these Zoom schools that's got a high English language learner population and is getting extra resources as a whole school. They might be in another school that just doesn't have as, as dense of an English learner population, but they still have those needs. So it's trying to capture these people that fall outside of the traditional model. Um, so anyways, the bill actually crossed its first hurdle today. It passed a committee vote and it's moving forward. I think the big question is, how much money is going to be going towards it total. We know that the governor's budget has set aside about $72 million that's being pushed for this weighted funding project, but it could be more, and And more money means just a, a larger number of students that can get these services.
0: Does it appear to have bipartisan support, uh, addressing however much money goes there, whether it's $70 million or more? Bipartisan support? The vote in the committee
3: was bipartisan? The vote in the committee was Six to one. Uh, So bipartisan, uh, Don Gustafson, Republican, voted against it. Who does not have a green button at his desk, we always say. (laughs) (laughs) But um, talking to the leadership, you know, the Republicans have told us that they're supportive of the weight concept. The governor has said he supported the weight concept. And the bill is a Democratic bill. So I think we've got the pieces together for this to move forward. And it's just a matter of how much money. I think it makes sense to people
0: listening, okay, you should allocate more money to, to kids who don't speak English very well or poor kids, which essentially is what this is about. Why is the number so big? I think people are wondering, why would it cost $1.1 billion to do this uh, the right way? Is it because they've waited so long, waited, the other waited so long uh, to,
3: to, to address us. Is that why the cost is so high? That's what, um, you know, the Nevada State Education Association Union will say, you know, we're just drastically underfunding education. That's why this number is so big, and, and this would be what we need to spend to adequately fund education now. Um, but I think the big price tag came in part because you're just using this multiplier number, so you're saying the basic amount that students get from the state, which is, say, $5,900, just straight double that for, for a special education student. That adds up pretty quickly. So I think it was just the formula that they were using um, was was driving up this number. And so it looks like that's gonna pass though. And, and it looks like it's gonna pass, but of course, you know, this is not touching all the students that need the services. It's um, a small, smaller subset, 30,000, maybe 50,000 kids. Very, very small. But it's a way to get this thing going. Um, this session and not have to wait another two years to to help these students that are not being served with this extra money.
0: So it seems like this issue is, is resolved as some issues are starting to get resolved uh, at the end. One One big political issue that uh, you've been following Megan, and, and maybe the, in some ways uh, the most interesting and politically contentious issue is this issue uh, 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 the, of, of freshman uh, Senator Ivana Cancela is trying to bring transparency to the pharmaceutical industry. It used to be a, there, what one time was a price control aspect of this. It's, uh, it's euphemistically, I think, called the diabetes bill because that's it only addresses diabetes. But I think the, pharma, the big pharmacies this is the nose uh, under the tent. Uh, she's amended it herself uh, a few times. Should say that. Uh, Senate bill 265 in case you want to go look at it. We are We are uh, uh, taping this podcast on Thursday night on Friday that bill may actually be voted uh, out out of the Senate. but we always, especially in the legislature say it may be because you never know uh, what might happen. It was supposed to be voted on perhaps today didn't get voted on. Having said all that, there's now a competing bill that's been thrown into the mix and that came out this week. Talk about that.
1: Right. So Republican Senator Michael Roberson on Monday announced this proposal. Um, this bill that essentially addresses a a different part of the the drug pricing process from what Democratic Senator Ivana Cancelo's bill does. So to just explain really briefly, the healthcare world is extremely complex, but when we talk about setting prices, you have the drug manufacturers who, you know, they set what's called a list price, and that's basically, you know, the starting point for what all drugs are going to cost. Then there's something called pharmacy benefit managers, and they're these sort of third-party middlemen administrators, and it's basically their job to be the go-between between drug manufacturers and insurance companies, and they're the ones who, they negotiate these discounts and rebates, so, you know, say your list price is $500, you know, they may you know negotiate discounts down to say 400 and then there are rebates that would bring it down to 300 and so it's this complicated process and so then it gets to the insurer and then eventually finally gets to you at the pharmacy counter where you know you're paying your copay or whatever it is that you have to do to actually pay for that medicine um so democratic senator ivana Kinsella's bill sb 265 sought to start at the beginning of the drug pricing process with pharmaceutical manufacturers What Michael Roberson's bill is doing is addressing pharmacy benefit managers. People often refer to them as PBMs. So what the bill does is it it does a couple of different things. There are some different transparency related provisions, but one of the most significant things that it does is it has this 80% cap that it puts in. And so it would require all pharmacy benefit managers to pass along 80% of the rebates they receive from manufacturers along to insurers. So the idea behind that is basically to make sure that pharmacy benefit managers aren't getting all of these discounts and rebates and making you know, exorbitant profits and then not passing any of those savings along to insurers and then who then aren't passing savings along to patients. So this is to ensure that that money then moves along to insurers, which then can move along to patients in an ideal world.
0: I, I guess what I'm wondering about is, is you can't, separate this issue, which you've explained very, very well, but it's very, very complex. And people, I never knew what a pharmacy benefit manager was until this issue came out. i have never even heard of it. But there's going to be a sense, and I would guess that the Democrats and Ivana Cancela have a sense, that this is to shift and probably pharma... Folks love this. Shift the focus away from the manufacturers, as are her, her bill, and put it on these 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 PBMs. Uh, and 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 there's I, I would bet that some Democrats, maybe even Ivana Cancel, think that this is a way to try to kill her bill. That it's a poison pill, so to speak, a poison pill in pharmaceutical. That's pretty clever. No, well, what do you think? Uh, like Let's three get, out of ten. Three out of ten. All right, that's very. High. Riley is a tough grader, so I'll take a three from him. So I, I guess what I what what I'm wondering about is the politics of all of this. Um, how how do you reconcile these two bills? Uh, uh, it, it, do you think, do, do you get the sense that Roberson wants this bill? Uh, because clearly the pharma folks are going to love this, I would think. Uh, is, is Ivana Kinsella going to go, go, try to do something to, 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 to uh, negotiate with Roberson? What's going on?
1: So there's a lot at play and it's very complicated, but I'll go back to a hearing. I want to say it was two weeks ago now. Um, the committee hearing or the committee vote on Ivana Kinsella's SB 265. So it was interesting because we saw the two Republicans on that committee, Senate Health and Human Services, specifically bring up concerns about PBMs and the fact that they weren't in her legislation. So that's Senator Joe Hardy and Senator Scott Hammond. They both mentioned it and said, you know, this is this is a great start, but we need to do something that shines light on the whole process. And so they sort of hinted that, you know, they wanted they wanted some sort of PBM transparency legislation to happen in some form. Um, and, you know, Senator Cancela during the hearing said, you know, I'd be more than happy, like, let's work on legislation. Let's see what we can do before it gets to the floor. So she decided actually to take a preemptive step and amended her own bill. And so now it includes this provision where pharmacy manufacturers are already providing all this other data under the bill. Now they would be required to disclose the amount of rebates and discounts that they're giving to PBMs. So, and that would put the disclosure requirement on the manufacturers about PBMs instead of Roberson's bill, which requires disclosure directly from the PBMs themselves. So she took the step of you know tr- trying to preempt it and addressing PBMs in her bill in the hope that she can get some votes and you know we may see like you mentioned the bill will be on general file tomorrow we don't know if it's actually going to get a vote it could get rolled you know there's <laughs> nothing's ever certain in the world of the legislature but if it does it'll be interesting to see you know whether that that PBM amendment is enough um, and it's hard to tell now that there is a separate proposal on the table the interesting thing is when you look at this you know and i've talked to some researchers who study this and it's not an it's not a it's it's an it's an either it's not an either or situation it's an and situation the question is just where you want to start and which bill and you know senator cancella said all along you know i wanted to start with pharma with the pharma companies that's the beginning of the process you know if we want to do pbms in a later session great but it's just a place to start. And so th- the interesting thing is that these bills aren't in conflict with each other. You could pass both of them and it would put different transparency provisions on different parts of the price-setting process. So there's a world in which both of these bills succeed and there's sort of broader overall transparency you know, within the price-setting process for diabetes drugs, which is what both of them are aiming to do through these bills. Um, So it'll be interesting to see what happens, you know, if if that bill, if uh, Senator Roberson's bill, SB 539, ends up actually getting a hearing, you know, that's yet to be determined. um, But they're not, you know, in conflict with each other. Yeah, let's remember
0: the Democrats control uh, the legislature. They're not that thrilled with Michael Roberson's behavior uh, uh, this session. So they don't have to give that bill a hearing. Uh, Let me just ask one more question on this. Um, It seems to me I've been hearing, and I think you've been hearing the same thing, the governor... Is not opposed to this concept. I think he might have been a little skeptical of the price controls, which is why that might not be in there. But I think he, you, you, you did a piece. On the time, I apologize. The time is running uh, altogether for me. But I think the poll that, that you reported on came out after our last podcast, uh, in which it showed how unpopular the the pharma companies are. I just don't think Brian Temple or anyone really there wants to be against something when people just people don't like pharmaceutical companies, right? There's no movies out there with the head of a pharmaceutical. Company being the hero, right? They're, they're they're usually the villains. So, do we know where the governor is? I mean, does does is he going to insist on on transparency for both sets? Uh, it, will, will he sign uh, uh, cancelis bill? I mean, he's very upset now with Michael Roberson because Michael Roberson attacked AG Burnett. What do we have any sense where he is now?
1: We've only gotten sort of a general sense that he's interested in the issue. You know that that it's something that his office has been keeping an eye on, and you know he doesn't keep an eye on things that he wouldn't potentially be interested in signing. So that in of itself is sort of, you know, I guess hopeful for both of these bills in a sense. Um, as far as, you know, which one he'll take, if he'll take one without the other, I mean, I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, is there bipartisan support? Is this a good policy? You know, and I don't think we have a lot of answers to those questions. So it'll be interesting to see as this conversation continues and as we see the vote tomorrow, you know, do, do all the Republicans vote against it because, you know, they want Senator Roberson's bill to pass and they just don't like this Democratic bill, you know, and now it, now it feels like SB 265 is a Democratic bill and SB 539 is a Republican bill, when in reality, it's just all these different policy proposals floating around. And I think sort of the hardest hurdle everyone sort of, you know, likes the idea of transparency, right? And the question is just where does when does transparency go too far? You know, are you are you impinging on their ability to, you know, manufacture and compete, you know, and, and develop all these innovative drugs? Are you, you know, in, impinging on, you know, uh, state trade secret law? And, and all of those are questions at play. You know, I think most people, you know, ideally want transparency. I think Republicans Republicans and Democrats have expressed an interest in, you know, wanting to know more about how drugs are priced but the question is, you know, how much of that can actually be done, how much will be done this session, and then is there anything they could do beyond that?
0: Yeah, and the politics here are just really, really bad for the Republicans because if Roberson's bill doesn't get a hearing, and what we'll, we'll be talking next week, I'm sure, on whether this bill if this bill has been voted on, whether it was a party line vote, if Roberson's bill never gets a hearing, then Republicans are gonna put themselves in a position of voting against the only transparency bill of the session, which I think could be a pretty powerful issue based on the poll that you released that was done. Uh, by uh, Ivana Cancela, But this issue is far from over. We'll we'll be talking about it uh, next week. All right, Riley, speaking of complex uh, issues, uh, you've immersed yourself in, in these energy issues, and, and, and uh, there were some developments uh, th- this week uh, on, on a couple of, of, of the major issues. Uh, I think since we did our last podcast, the two issues that we focused on most have to do with rooftop solar, which was a big deal, and the so-called renewable portfolio standard, which essentially is, is setting the amount of, of renewables that, that, that have to be uh, out there. Chris Brooks has been involved, as I alluded to earlier, in, in both those. those. What, what are the developments on that front?
2: Yeah, so the biggest development this week came on the renewable portfolio standard front. As you said, it's how much energy has to be generated in the state or used in the state that comes from renewable sources. Right now, it's set at 25% by 2025. That's the goal. Envy Energy, the state's largest utility, who you buy electricity from probably, unless you're listening in like um, says we, we can reach that goal. Chris Brooks's bill is has been like pegged as the 80% RPS bill. What it really does is make a 50% mandate by 2030 with a goal of getting to 80% by 2040. Um, and he had an amendment that came out this week. We reported on it in the Nevada Independent. It does a lot of different things, but it still keeps in place that 50% goal. It creates uh, incentives for energy storage, which I don't think has ever been done before for renewable portfolio standards. What does that
0: mean, energy storage?
2: Right, so if you've gone on Tesla's website and seen all the things about, you know, batteries, um, it's this idea that rather than, than generating electricity and using it immediately or, like, moving it around the grid to where it's needed you just keep it stored in a battery there's there's like five or six different ways to use later on yeah to use later on it's really good for something like solar because solar energy generation peaks at midday because that's when the sun's highest in the air you know uh demand peaks later afternoon when everyone gets home and you know you start cooking dinner and the energy needs increase so there is a, a multiplier credit which basically means you get Two for the price of one, uh, kilowatt hours for storing electricity. I don't think any other state has done that for RPS. There's also a multiplier, like one and a half credit for new geothermal. There's some stuff about wedding um, large casinos and other, they're called 704B customers. It's people who have decided to leave NV Energy's purview and buy energy on the open 704B market.
0: 704B is a statute. That's why they're called that, right?
2: Yeah, and because energy people are nerds, everything has to be like an, a weird acronym that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so, they, it allows them to keep using energy efficiency statutes under his bill. Um, these big customers, these are people like Switch, people like MGM, people like Caesars, would have to follow RPS standards. So they have a pretty big interest in the bill. They testified against it when it first came up. So that that's kind of a carrot out to them. Um, but it was interesting to see because my assumption kind of the whole time along was that Republicans were going to be kind of uncomfortable with this because we have this whole pending question of what's going to happen with question three. It's the energy deregulation ballot question. It passed 75 25 Usually when things pass 75-25, they're going to pass again the next go around. And that basically means Envy Energy has to get out of uh, um, the energy market and we'll have retail choice come 2023. Mm. So there's a lot of questions about the future of energy. We've talked about it on past podcasts and board all of you and all the (laughs) listeners about what that entails. But a lot of Republicans are concerned because if we're demanding Envy Energy, you know, goes out in the desert and installs all these big solar plants to meet these RPS standards, what happens when they can't own them anymore? Who buys them? Do they have to sell them off in a fire sale? You know, if that happens and they lose a lot of money the ratepayers, you me all the electricity cup customers are stuck with the bill so there's been a lot of republican pushback but you did have two republicans on wednesday when this bill came up for a committee vote vote for it uh, republican assembly members jill tolls and al kramer joined democrats and they voted for the bill to move it out of committee uh, tolls was all on board she said that this, she's gotten a ton of positive feedback on this she wants a bunch of solar jobs in nevada uh, Kramer was a little more concerned. He had the same issue with stranded assets. What happens to the generating plants, you know, once th- um, if Retail Choice passes, but he still voted for the bill. So I believe it's going to come up for a vote next week. This has been one of the most heavily lobbied energy issues of the session. Like I said before, there's a lot of big casino companies, big power players who are affected by what happens with this. You know, if, if you're requiring MGM or a Caesars to get 80, 50% of their electricity by renewable sources, they have to go. And install solar themselves. They're not in NV Energy's utility, so they either have to bite on the open market or produce it themselves. So there's like a lot of questions. There's a lot of like political fighting and lobbying um, behind the scenes. I also have details of an NV Energy amendment of some tweaks that they had to Brooks's bill. So it'll be interesting to see what has happened with this. It hasn't really made a lot of progress or movement um, in, in the past month or so, but it's finally starting to like move through the legislative pipeline in the last couple days
0: i have to ask you though uh if poison pill is a three out of ten what is power players what do you rate that
2: that's a two out of ten that <laughs> that's was bad. A two?
0: Oh my goodness please don't
2: unsubscribe if you're listening
0: <laughs> so so real quickly let, let, let me ask you riley I, I i mean most people listen you say they're bored i, I listen this is a fascinating issue you, you and you and michelle i believe did, did a really deep dive into this you can people can go find that uh on on the site Energy politics and energy policies, excuse me, are very complex how they actually arrive at rates, even more complex than uh, pharmaceutical uh, prices, right? But people care about essentially two things, right, who are listening, and, and, and the energy choice, Envy uh, Energy has essentially said, you know, washed its hands. Okay, we're not going to be a provider of last resort. Don't count on us for anything, which is really subtle. Uh, right? And, and they're neutral on the whole thing. But th- there's two things people care about. They walk into their houses and they flip on a light switch, the lights are, 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 are going on. And of course, what they care about most are rates. And so what has the testimony been about what's going to happen to rates uh, with all these changes?
2: So that's kind of the big fight over mm-hmm. this RPS bill, right? Because you had a lot of these casinos who helped fund uh, the question three ballot measure. I think it was Sands, MGM and Switch. You put all the money behind it say, uh, or come to the table, Switch didn't, I know the Sands did, I think MGM as part of the Resource Association came and opposed it, saying, we don't want to handcuff ourselves and say we have to make this much renewable energy, not knowing what on earth is going to happen past 2023. We have no idea. There's an interim committee of 25 people and Mark Hutchison, the, the cat herder, trying to figure this stuff out over the next year. But we really don't have an idea. No one has deregulated their energy market since the late 90s. No one in a state like Nevada that's really big doesn't have a lot of um, carbon-heavy fuel sources. All we really have is solar and natural gas we import. No one has really done it who has been in our shoes before. So there's, there's a lot of open questions. Um, they do have a lot of concerns about how is this going to affect everyday people's power, uh, or power bills um, and w- what kind of impact raising the portfolio standard will have on that. Um, that's been like the biggest point of opposition, at least that I've seen so far.
0: All right. And uh, I'm going to come back to you in a minute, Riley, for the new feature that, uh, of, of the podcast. But first, I want to talk uh, about a couple other uh, things that are being wrapped up, because uh, some of these issues are getting resolved, it seems, slowly but surely. Uh, a piece that ran <clears throat> last weekend after we did our po- podcast that, that, that Michelle and Megan uh, worked on was this. A uh, big issue of criminal justice reform, which has a lot of components to it, there were some developments this week uh, on on that criminal justice reform, which has been caricatured by uh, Michael Roberson uh, and with some of these bills. Is this is the session of the felon, uh, it, 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 but the governor's clearly interested in this as a former federal judge. Uh, you guys did a big package on all these bills, and, and there are things that are happening, including on a bill to restore felon, felon's rights, which both, there's actually two bills, one that uh, uh, each of the Democratic leaders has had. What, what, what? Talk about that package that you guys ran and, and what the developments were this week.
3: Uh, well, that package kind of looked at some of the political challenges of doing this, as you've explained. You know, it's something that both of the leaders are very passionate about, but they've kind of got to walk a fine line with it. They can't Push it down people's throats. You've got the Republican governor here. People are very conscious about not, you know, um, looking like they're ignoring victims or, or giving people a free pass. Um, and it's just hard to do a lot of these things. It's hard to. The one thing that would make a difference in the prison population is is really reducing sentences. That that would make a dent. Um, some of these would make small dents. Uh, but that's just something that you can't do in a legislative session. It's got to be something that you've got to get a lot of buy-in. You've got to you have some interim committee really work on this. You've got to have everything tied up. Um, so anyways, that's not happening. Uh, so we're trying to find, the Democrats are trying to find a lot of other ways to to do things that will move people out of prison and onto parole, um, get people that are on parole jobs so they don't reoffend, offend um, and just do things like, Make the bail uh, more payable, more affordable for these people that just have no money. Um, you set a thousand dollar bail, and that's huge for someone who's has nothing. Um, so one of the things we did was outline—gosh, it was probably almost fifty yeah, bills. It's definitely more than forty, but yeah, maybe fifty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, there's just so many—a variety of bills that are that are going through the process, and a lot of these have party line votes or are stalled, kind of somewhere along the process. Mm-hmm. Um, And one of the things that we found yesterday, um, I I think both of the leaders are really intent on being able to restore felon uh, voter rights after they get out of prison and are done with their parole. Um, So we saw a bill, a very unusual move, a bill um, that would have restored the rights had already been voted out of committee. It came back into the committee. They rescinded the vote. It was a gutted version of the bill, um, so basically what they had done is is pulled voting rights and record ceiling apart into two bills. And I, I think this is a technique so that if one dies, the other still lives, and you don't marry these two and lose everything. Uh, so you see some real strategy going on as they're trying to navigate this uh, through the process. And the
0: governor uh, in the past has not uh, looked too favorably on this. In fact, he vetoed a bill, right, uh, that, that would have restored felon rights in the past.
1: He did, yeah. And that's one thing that when I was talking to Speaker Jason Frierson yesterday about his bill, um, that's one of the things, you know, that, that he's mentioned to me, you know, is that is making sure that the bill they put forward, you know, they don't want him to have to just veto the same bill he did back in 2011. They want it to be a different bill and find it to be something that he can live with. Um, and so the interesting thing, like Michelle was saying, the bill that was gutted was SB 125, that's Senator Ford's bill over on the Senate side. Uh, Speaker Frierson's bill AB one eighty one has been sitting on the chief clerk's desk, which is kind of like a legislative limbo, um, while they've been trying to f- while he's been trying to figure out you know what form he wanted that bill to take. And like Michelle mentioned, um, Senator Ford's bill was just focusing on on sort of the record sealing aspects. Where Speaker Frierson's bill AB one eighty one is now going to be the mechanism by which you know voting rights would be restored. Um, still, when I was talking to him, and it actually officially got amended on the floor today. He did scale back his bill significantly from what it was before. So a previous version of the bill would have allowed some of the more serious offenders, Category A and Category B, caused, you know, substantial bodily harm with use of violence. Those offenders would have been able to have their rights restored after two years under the original version of the bill. This bill strips all that out. So now it just applies to lower level felons. Um, And it deals with the, the problem that some people had brought up, which is that, Right now, you can have your voting rights immediately restored if you're honorably discharged from parole or probation and, or you get out of prison. Um, what this does is it makes it so that even if you're dishonorably discharged, you still get those rights back um, when, when you leave, when you complete you know, parole or probation or you get out of, get out of, uh, get out of prison. Um, And so this is a a smaller sort of, you know, more narrow step. It, It only deals with the lower level offenders, which is sort of an easier pill to swallow than, you know, these category A and B, the sort of more serious offenses um and i know republicans had some concerns with you know are is it you know are we giving them too much back too quickly you know for such serious crimes it's
0: interesting how this issue has evolved over the last couple of decades i remember being in the legislature in the 90s and it was all tough on crime bills you know uh three strikes and you're out and all the rest of this. So now you're having the sensitivity to this and it's occurred to me and i'm sure it's occurred to you guys too it's tough to take the 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 underlying component of race out of this right you have two African-American leaders, and even if you think of it, you have a minority in the governor's office as well who may be more sensitive uh, to, to, to these issues. Uh, we do get a sense, right, that the governor does want to sign some kind of criminal justice reform bill package, right? I mean, that's uh, do we have that message from the always forthcoming uh, uh, governor's
3: office? I think... Um He's been a little vague. We asked him what he think of this movement. <laughs> yeah. uh, and he was he was pretty narrowly focused on the specific juvenile justice bill that he has and and he wants that to pass. But I think it's telling that um you know these leaders are meeting with him a lot. They they talk about trying to do something to address his concerns. So I get the feeling that there is a lot of back and forth between those um, Two offices, and they're really trying to make something work. It's not the door has not closed on this issue, right? And Speaker Frierson did indicate, you know, that he's had conversations with the
1: governor's office, and again, they're not having conversations about things. They're not potentially, you know, he's not potentially interested in signing. And if it they go gets way back, form,
0: Frierson yeah. and and uh, and and Sandoval. They worked together when Sandoval was the attorney general, and so they have a relationship. So, and you're right, of course, and it's good to keep bringing that up too, Megan. Uh, about it. they're they're not talking, they're not having conversations with the governor about things that he there's no chance he's going to sign. They're not wasting time at this point. One other quick thing, uh, uh, Riley, I want to talk about. Uh, is, is uh, the issue of paid sick leave. That's a big deal also for the Democrats. They've had a lot of trouble getting the governor to come even close to committing to sign an, anything uh, on that. There was a development on paid sick leave, I believe, this week, yes?
2: Yes, so the Senator Ford, this is one of his big priorities, is to make sure that employers with, I believe it's more than 25 employees, these are all private employers, have to offer some form of paid sick time off um, to their employees. There's a few concessions that they made to the business community. Um, these include, like, it only applies to full-time workers, so you have to work at your job for a year before you qualify for this. It caps out at 80 hours max. You can't keep it, like, accumulating over time. So they think that they've made something that's a little bit more palatable to the business community. You have the normal, you know, chamber folks, Retail Association of Nevada, Federation of Small Businesses. They came up and they said this is going to ruin the economy. This is basically going to turn Nevada into socialism, blah, 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 blah. But what was interesting about this was that you had lobbyists for MGM and Caesars come up and testify in favor of the bill, in addition to the usual, you know, parade of progressive groups who say this is the next best thing. So it was a little crossing of the lines. Assemblyman Paul Anderson, who's a Republican, did point out that the bill specifically exempts employers who have collectively bargained with their employees. Caesars and MGM have collectively bargained with their employees. So technically, this bill wouldn't affect them. You know, it remains to be seen what the governor is going to say about this. He said in an earlier statement that he has historically opposed this policy. Right. But I think this amendment and giving a little bit more leeway um, gives the bill more legs and more of a chance than just a absolute slam-dunk veto.
0: All right, Riley, I, I will tell uh, all of our podcast listeners that this was your idea, and so I'm going to let you go with it now. This week in Michael Roberson... This is the part episode. where
2: I freestyle rap about what Michael Roberson did this week. No.
0: <laughs> turn, turn, turn off the podcast now. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> go ahead, Riley. This week in Michael Roberson...
2: Uh, well, actually, Michelle can jump in, because Michael Roberson did not have the best day. Was it Monday? The Legislative Commission stuff. Tuesday. Tuesday?
3: Tuesday. Tuesday. Yeah.
2: So what happened on Tuesday to Michael Roberson?
3: Well, uh, Republicans were a little bit blindsided on Tuesday when suddenly this resolution comes up. And surprise, they're going to reappoint members to the Legislative Commission. This is something that usually happens Later in the session, what is the legislative commission for the those? The legislative don't know? commission is a group of twelve lawmakers, evenly split between uh, Senate and Assembly. They are the ones that make a lot of these key decisions during the year and a half where the regular legislature is not in session. Last interim, they approved 262 sets of regulations, which can make or break a business. They're the way that kind of the law is interpreted and implemented. They're very—it's an influential group. Michael Roberson was the current chair of this group, as the Republicans had the majority last session. Uh, But basically, the Democrats not only knocked him off, they didn't consult with the Republicans on which Republicans should be on the committee, and they appointed two Republicans and Senator Patricia Farley, formerly a Republican, had a big falling out with Senator Roberson, became a nonpartisan, and caucuses with the Democrats. So basically, the Democrats have three people, the Republicans have two people, and then you've got this nonpartisan who's planning to still vote along with the Democrats during the interim. So um, it was kind of this weird technicality. The rules maybe leave some um, leeway to do that, but it was definitely a jab at Michael Roberson, who has been a thorn in Aaron Ford's side. I think they were going to
0: do this anyway, but I found out today that they also, uh, one of the other reasons they did it is the Legislative Commission has subpoena power. And they were really worried that Roberson was going to abuse that subpoena power and try to bring A.G. Burnett, who was caught up in this Laxalt uh, tapes issue, uh, to try to put him in the stocks before the Legislative Commission. So they wanted to take Roberson out of it. My prediction is, by the way, that this will not last, that the governor at some point, maybe at the end, will come back in and say, wait a second, got to uh, uh, even this up. And I don't think he'll do it for Roberson, but I think he'll do it for the Republicans.
2: Yeah, it was a little cutesy maneuver and you know right. we've talked a lot about or not really but just internally about what patricia farley the only independent senator in the legislature is going to do um she caucuses with the democrats we can go back and look at the exact numbers but she's voted with them 95 plus percent of the time um if she runs again it's not going to be as a republican
0: so what else this week in michael roberson what else happened
2: oh it was kind of a slow week for michael roberson yeah. um on wednesday he had a special guest come to his office that was attorney general adam laxalt <laughs> that's where he was holed up before the hearing um And yeah, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about kind of the intermingling between those two. Uh, Roberson is a considering, I guess, is the way we can put it, a run for lieutenant governor. Laxalt is a favorite for governor. So they're slowly like melding candidacies. Um, I reported a little bit earlier that uh, Laxalt's longtime campaign guy, Robert Eitovin, had started a pack called Stand with Roberson back in March. Uh, You know, the the everything's lining up in, in favor. I thought, you know, the one place Adam Laxalt feels safe in the Nevada legislature, it's Michael Roberson's <laughs> office. It was a little telling.
0: I love that. All right. Uh, we're almost out of time. Let's let's talk a little bit about and give give our uh, loyal podcast listeners a little preview of what's coming up. So uh, each of you, uh, give, give uh, our listeners a preview of what you have coming uh, uh, on tap in the next few days. Michelle. Uh,
3: I'm planning to do something on some decisions related to private prisons. This is... Um, You know, a big thing that both Speaker Frierson and uh, Senate Majority Leader Aaron Ford have been very vocally against, something that the Department of Correction says they need to use. Um, So these two interests are clashing. So we'll hear more about that. Look out for that one. That's a great issue.
1: Well, Riley and I have another Follow the Money in our always ongoing series. And uh, this weekend, we're focusing on lawyers, which there are a lot of, too as many. you might imagine. Too many lawyers. Way too many mm-hmm. lawyers. Uh, yeah, we're not, we, we for those of you who follow our Follow, our follow the Monies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we break down all the different contributions, and they're just simply too many to do every single lawyer. So we're just doing the big ones. Um, but that'll be fun to look at, you know, the, the influence that, that lawyers will Look wield. for that on
0: Sunday, as yeah. always. Yeah. Riley?
2: I was going to say, Megan, that my favorite comment I've gotten from these stories is from lawmakers who are like, these are great. I save all of them. I know who to fundraise for <laughs> yeah, next cycle. Yeah, we've
1: inadvertently created we're fundraising lists. Yeah,
2: <laughs> Public service, I guess. That's great. Um, I will have a Sunday story on some of the players and some of the maybe conflicting conflicts in the whole energy debate because nevada is a very small state and contract lobbyists can have a lot of different clients some of them have different goals so look for that on sunday
0: that's that sounds like a great story too and since uh riley pointed out that last week i was the first time that news was broken uh, on the podcast i kind of feel pressure now that maybe i should break news uh, on the podcast, is, we're all
2: fired. Is that
0: no, 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 no? <laughs> well, wait a second. Maybe one of you is. If everyone has to guess which one it is, uh, Riley. Uh, anyhow, I, 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 the news I'm going to tell everybody, and you'll hear it first on this podcast, is Scott Hammond, the state senator who has put it out there that he's going to run against uh, Congressman Ruben Kewen is now looking at running in Jackie Rosen's district, uh, CD three, instead, which is a much more competitive district uh, for the Repub- Republicans. You heard it first, where the Indy Matters podcast, and that is all the time that we have for this week on the Indy Matters podcast. We want to know what you think. So if you have ideas, criticism, or even praise, email us at ideas at the nvindy.com. Please check out our site if you haven't already. It's the nevadaindependent.com. And go on iTunes and rate us and subscribe. And there's all kinds of other places uh, you can find us. So I want to thank my great Carson team of reporters, Michelle, Megan, and Riley. Thanks for being here. And of course, We always want to thank our super intern, producer, make us sound good, ask us uh, what our essays were in high school. Joey Lovato, thanks as always for making us sound good. I'm John Ralston. Thanks for listening to Indy Matters. We'll talk to you next week.
2: Uh, I got to write an essay like deconstructing a Lady Gaga video for women's studies class and that was a fun (laughs) essay to write There's a lot going on in the bad romance music video